On Christmas night, as the shepherd boys were guarding their flocks just outside of Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus was announced first by an angel and then by angels who said these words in Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I read that passage because that's one of the things we think about uh, every Christmas and we're going to talk about that today. Now there's a little variant reading there. The New Living Translation reads like this and you may have something that reads more this way. Glory to God in, in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. This wasn't a new idea by the way when the angels announced it. Many Old Testament prophecies, especially the prophet Isaiah, referred to Messiah's mission of bringing peace to planet earth. And it's something that people talk about and want. We see stories about it in uh, movies and uh, television programs. While Jesus came to bring peace 2,000 years ago, however, peace has eluded us on this planet as long as there has been sin. You ever hear of something called the Pax Romana? It was uh, 200 years of more or less peace uh, in the Roman Empire. And by the way, so it was a fairly peaceful time and people look at it as a time of peace on earth. Uh, but if you think about what happened, that, that time lasted from 27 BC to 187 AD. Now, a lot of stuff happened during that period of time. For instance, Jesus was born during that, that period of time and Jesus was betrayed during that period of time and Jesus was crucified during that period of time and Christianity was born during that period of time and the church was, was persecuted and many were killed during uh, that period of time and the Jews rebelled against uh, the Romans and the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Romans and it was sacked by the Romans and the, the, the temple was destroyed by the Romans all during the time of peace. You see, that's the kind of peace that we have on earth. There really is no peace on this earth without Jesus. There's always conflict and you could throw up the name of a, a, whatever country is on your mind uh, this morning. You may have family members that are deployed in some of these countries today where there is no peace. And within our own nation, there's all kinds of conflict, but we're going to talk about peace today. Now, uh, for the first four Sundays of December leading up to Christmas Eve, we, uh, we have a new series. It's called Experience Christmas. And, and we want to learn how to experience the things that Christmas brings to us, uh, beginning with this. The first topic is experience the peace of Christmas. This series, is, this series is from the prophecies of Isaiah and shows us how God offers to us, even on this planet right now, even before Jesus returns for us, a rich, full, and rewarding life in him. And Isaiah tells us how we can experience that during the Christmas season and carry it on through the rest of the year. Certainly, as I've said, there's very little peace on earth right now, even though we'll hear lots of stories about peace uh, during the Christmas season. So today we're going to, just going to talk about the fact that even though that peace hasn't happened yet on a political level, it can happen on a personal level. As a matter of fact, God intends for it to happen on a personal level in each one of us, and he intends for us to spread that peace uh, to others. You can experience the peace of Christmas, God's peace in your life, regardless of what's happening around you right now. There may be turmoil anywhere and everywhere 
uh, in your life, uh, but you can have uh, the peace that the Apostle Paul talks about in the New Testament, which he calls the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. That's Philippians chapter four, verse seven. So let's, let's go to the first prophecy. We're gonna look at four prophecies in four weeks uh, from, the, from Isaiah. And let's look at the first one, Isaiah chapter two, verses one through five. Now, by the way, in Isaiah chapter one, Isaiah has really uh, ripped Israel, you know, and, and Judah in particular, you know, for their sin against God and all the punishment for their sin. But Isaiah is kind of an interesting book, you know, and, and the prophets in general, there's these terrible, terrible things, but God, but God is going to bring good things uh, in the future. And so Isaiah chapter two, verse one, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's all of Israel, right? Judah was the southern tribes. Uh, Israel, uh, in the, uh, the, well, Judah and Jerusalem, the southern tribes in particular, but God has all tribes in mind. Now verse two says, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be exalted on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Stopping there for just a minute. Anytime in the latter days, or really a lot of versions say in the last days. When we hear last days, we usually think apocalypse, right? Rapture, great tribulation period, terrible things happening on, uh, on the earth. And, and, and those words do describe the last days. In fact, the Bible tells us that we've been living in the last days since the time that Jesus went back to heaven uh, after his first uh, time on earth. Uh, but for Isaiah, we're living in the next to the last days. Uh, the last days that he describes here in, in Isaiah 2 are days of peace. There's nothing scary about them at all. Now, Isaiah didn't know exactly when this was going to happen because Old Testament prophets didn't know the exact order uh, of the events, exactly how they would happen. But the New Testament makes it clear that what, what uh, Isaiah is describing here is going to happen during Jesus' 1,000-year rule or reign of peace on this earth uh, at the conclusion of the age that we live in now. We, uh, as Christians and Christianese, we call that the what? The millennium, right? You ever heard that, hear that? The millennium. Now, a millennia, uh, a millennium is just a thousand years. The millennium is the 1,000 years. So he says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. In scripture, mountains usually denote governmental authorities or nations. And so the prophecy is that God's people denoted as the mountain of the Lord's house. There is a mountain. Uh, you know, Jerusalem sits on the top of a mountain and on the top of the top of that mountain is the temple mound. And on the temple mound was the house of God or the temple. So that represents uh, the, the people of Israel. The mountain of the Lord's house will be above all other mountains, above all other nations. Verse three says this, many people shall come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, from Jerusalem, the Lord himself, Yahweh, Messiah, Jesus will rule from Jerusalem at this particular time. And it seems amazing to us that there's come, coming a time where everybody will say, let's go hear what God has to say. Let's go listen to, let's go learn some things from God. 
verse 4, the most well-known of these verses that I'll read to you this morning. He, that is the Lord himself, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. A lot of people quote some of these words or, or paraphrase some of these words. Many of them probably don't even realize they're quoting the Bible uh, when they say this. Look at another translation, by the way. The New International Version says, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. Jesus is gonna be in charge during this period of time and no one will be able to do anything without his approval. Here's what the nations are gonna do. They're gonna beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. No more military. No more soldiers going off to war. Nobody, uh, Chris Talbert is, is gone for his weekend duty right now. None of that stuff will be necessary. Everybody will be involved in peacetime activities. When I was growing up in the 60s, you know, that one of the popular sayings was, what if they gave a war and no one came? I don't know how many of you have heard that. That's, that's, that was a hippie statement. Or if we took everything we spend on war and defense and spend it on welfare, there would be no hungry people in the world. And that's a true statement. That time is coming, but only when Jesus is in control. All those things that we want, peace on earth and no war and no poverty and you know, no conflict between nations, that time is coming. But now is not that time. And then the last verse, verse five. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is not future. Now this is a statement for right now. O house of Jacob, Israel, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. When great truths about the, script, about the future are given in Scripture, readers are often reminded of how they should live right now in the present. For instance, in the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter tells about how that this universe as we know it is going to be just it's going to explode one day. Uh, it, all the atomic bonds and every Adam are going to be released, you know, and it, it, everything will just explode. And, and so when Peter gets finished talking about that, uh, he says, now, since we know that's going to happen, how should that affect how we live right now? What kind of people should we be if we know that's what's going to happen uh, in the future? And, and, and Isaiah is saying something like that. He says, look, in the future, there's going to be peace on earth. In the future, when Jesus comes, uh, there, you know, there, there's not going to be any war. There's not going to be any conflict between people. And then he says, oh, house of Jacob, come and let us walk in that light. Let's live that life right now. In view of the fact that in the millennium, all nations will stream to Jerusalem to learn God's word. It would be sensible for Israel already knowing God's word to follow it until the Lord sets up his kingdom. So I think that what these verses teach us for the present is that God's plan for this planet uh, is that we learn to live in peace. And that will happen before this world ends. 
It's his promise. But until that day, until we see it on a global level, we can experience it on a personal level. And by the way, uh, you know, I'm in favor of seeking peace between nations and whatever we can do right now. I'm in favor of negotiations and, and, and everything of that nature, as long as we're smart with what we do. Even though I don't believe peace is possible, until Jesus comes back again, I think peace is possible from time to time, and we should do everything we can. And so these verses teach us how to experience God's peace and how to spread God's peace to other people. What I'm going to talk about this morning is three steps to experience God's peace or the peace of Christmas. And the first thing is this. I must learn to walk in his presence. I must learn that God is here and I need to walk in the light that he shines walking with him. Back to that verse, Isaiah 2, 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. He's saying even though some of these promises haven't yet been fulfilled, let's learn how to walk in the light of the Lord in anticipation of what God's going to do in the future. And when you walk in God's light or God's presence, you begin to experience God's peace. And when you don't walk in God's presence, you don't know his peace. But what does it mean? Well, a couple of things. First of all, it means this. It means to acknowledge his presence. First thing we need to do is acknowledge God's presence. When you wake up in the morning, God's there. As you go about your morning activities, you fix your coffee or you fix your breakfast, you get the kids ready for school, you take care of the dogs, you, uh, you get in your car and you, you, you head for work, God is there with you. And the sooner in the day you acknowledge his presence, the sooner you will be able to experience his peace. I don't know what it's like for you, but when I wake up in the morning, uh, and usually it's before I get up, uh, peaceful thoughts are not the first things that come to my mind. I think about bills to pay and problems that have to be solved and people who are in trouble that need to be aided, a world at war. But it's exactly at that moment that we have to learn to say, Jesus, Lord Jesus, I acknowledge and I welcome your presence in my life today. You're here with me right now. You're in control of every situation. I give this day and I give all the issues of this day to you. If I can do that from my heart, I've got a chance of having peace through that day. So first, it means to acknowledge God's presence. Second thing is this. Walking in God's light means to practice obedience. That is, you have to do what God says to do. It's impossible to experience God's peace when you are your number one priority and your sin or doing things your way is your number one priority. If you want peace, there is a sacrifice you must be willing to make. I must be willing to make. I have to stop doing what does not please God and start doing what, do, God, what does please God if I want God's peace in my life. We want it both ways. We want God's peace and we want to do it our own way. We want God's peace and we want to cling to our favorite sins that we do. We want God's peace, but we want to be free to gossip. That's an old-fashioned word, but we still do it all the time. It's still a favorite pastime is talking about people. And, and, and by the way, whether it's true or false, it can still be gossip. If you're not talking to help, uh, what you're doing is gossip. We want God's peace, but we want to get even with people. We want to hurt people for what they've done to us. We want God's peace, but we don't want to start, start, stop criticizing and 
nagging and going on at our spouse, our husband, or our wife. We want God's peace, but we want to put everything in the world ahead of him and just give him what's left over. But to experience God's peace, I must make a choice to live God's way rather than my way. When you consider the power of God's peace, it should be a fairly easy choice to make. The sacrifices that you'll have to make are well worth it. It's kind of like uh, uh, we don't like to fly uh, on airplanes as much as we used to because of all the, the new security regulations. You know, you're supposed to get there early and you got to wait in that really long line and they open up your baggage. And if you have something there that's a little bit too much liquid, they're going to throw it in the trash can right there uh, in front of you. And you can only have one carry-on bag. And all those uh, uh, all those things kind of irritate us and take some of the joy out of flying. But for the luxury of safe travel, those are really small sacrifices to make. For the luxury of being safe when you get on an airplane, go from one place to another. Now, in the same way, it may not be easy for you to put God first. It may not be easy for you to abandon some of the things that are against God in your life. But for the luxury of God's peace, there are small sacrifices to make. So if you want to experience God's peace in your life, if you want to experience peace this Christmas, make an effort to walk in God's light. Acknowledge his presence in all you do, all day, every day, put him first. Second thing is this, I must become a student of his ways. I must study the ways of God. I say that because the third verse says this is what's going to happen in the future. Isaiah 2, 3. Many people shall come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his path. Those things go together, right? We shall, he shall teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. If you're a, a student of God's ways, uh, then you are going to do the things that God wants you to do. Uh, it starts by spending time in God's word. Now, I realize I talk about this all the time, but do you do it uh, all the time? You know, uh, we need to spend time in God's word. Some of that seems kind of academic. You know, you learn the books of the Bible and who wrote each one and the historical settings and the summary of the book's contents and, 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 and the, the theological divisions and that kind of thing. And, and there's certainly nothing wrong with Bible knowledge. As a matter of fact, you need Bible knowledge, but it's just that's not the goal. Uh, that's, there's a way more to it than that. The real purpose, think about this, the real purpose of Bible study is not to acquire information but to experience transformation. Now, you may need the information to get the transformation, but that's not the goal. That's not the, uh, getting a head full of knowledge is not the goal. The goal is changing your life. The real purpose of Bible study is, as Isaiah indicates, to learn his way so that we can walk in his paths. Uh, so when you read God's word, ask, what must I do to take this seriously? How can I apply this to my life? Not just, boy, that was, that's really cool. That's really neat right there. But what can I do to make this a reality uh, in my life? It's kind of like, suppose you want to get in better physical shape. You could buy and read some good books on diet and exercise. You could get a, a, a good workout video and watch that. You could join a gym and, and, and 
tell yourself you're going to go three times or five times a week, but after doing all that, you'd be in no better shape. You wouldn't have lost a pound. You wouldn't be any stronger. Uh, you don't lose anything or gain any of the right thing until you start eating the right ways and exercising. And the principle is just this. Knowledge is only useful when I apply it to my life. I can have all kinds of knowledge. And I've known people that just had a head full of knowledge. They just didn't have a heart full of knowledge. They never could get it from their head to their actions. They could debate with you about things and they could quote scripture, but it didn't affect their life in any way. In order to experience God's peace, we must become students of his ways. Let me read you a couple of verses. King David said this, Psalm 119, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Teach me the way. What should I do? And I shall keep it to the end. I'm going to abide by that to the end. Verse 34, give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. It's not just going to be knowledge that I have, but it's going to come from my heart. Verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Or uh, make me walk, help me to stay on the right path. That's where real pleasure comes from, staying on the right path. I think, boy, if I just deviated over here, this would be nice. But uh, David said, help me to stay on the right path because that's where real delight is. In Psalm 16, the psalmist wrote this, Psalm 16, 11, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. That's where joy and peace are. They're in the presence of God. They come from doing the right thing. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or as somebody said in an uneducated way, if you ain't living it, you ain't learned it. If it's just up here, you haven't learned anything. So in order to experience God's peace, we need to study his word so we can learn his way, so we can walk in his path. And one last thing, and this may be the hardest thing, I must let go of conflict. Peace is all about turning loose of conflict. Remember that fourth verse, Isaiah 2, 4? He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people, settle disputes between people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war. They won't be preparing for war, putting money into war, putting time into war anymore. By the way, do you know what a plowshare is? I don't. I've never plowed a foot much less a row in my life. But a plowshare is the cutting part of the plow. Uh, and, and a pruning hook speaks of pruning knives or sickles or scythes, scythes you know, that, uh, uh, that you'd use to cut down wheat. Now, we've got big machines to do that these days. So we'll just, uh, we'll just, instead of producing tanks, we'll just produce harvesting machines, as the Bible says. Well, Isaiah says that there will come a day when nations no longer train for war because no nation will be at risk for attack from another nation. Now, we could try that no preparation stuff today if we wanted to. What do you think would happen? Well, there's always some crazy person out there, like the guy that leads North Korea, that is willing to take advantage of people that are not prepared. Uh, so that doesn't work, but one day, in the age of peace, when Jesus rules for a thousand years, there'll be no war and there'll be no threat of war. 
And you won't have to worry about it when you go to bed at night, when you wake up in the morning. You won't have to worry about your sons and your daughters, uh, your brothers and your sisters being spread across the, the earth. But in the area of interpersonal relationships, God wants us to start doing that right now. God wants us to live out the peace of Christmas, peace on earth. He wants us to live outside the peace that we have on the inside. In fact, the New Testament is filled with commandments that we should do just exactly that. Commandments to sacrifice our rights and our convenience for the sake of peace in us and the sake of peace in others. Now, I'm not gonna put this uh, on the screen, but the fruit of the Spirit that's produced in us when we submit ourselves to God starts with three things. They are love, joy, peace. God says that's the first three things that are produced in you. By the way, the rest of them are patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what God wants to produce in us. That's what God wants us to have between each other in our interpersonal relationships. As you read the writings of Paul in the New Testament, you hear this theme repeated. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. I think most of you have heard this many times. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to live peaceably with all people. Sometimes I don't do that. Sometimes I get mad uh, at people. Sometimes I snap back uh, at Jean. And even that statement, I indicated that she might have done something to start with, right? But if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourself. Now, kind of last verse, as much as it is possible for you. But this one kind of says, don't take vengeance on anybody. No personal vengeance. No matter what anybody does to you, don't, don't take vengeance against others. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God will take care of it. Personal vengeance. Verse 20, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. Don't let the evil of this world turn you into the same kind of a person, but overcome evil with good. Here's something else. This is even harder to do. In the area of personal disputes between Christians, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 says, dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. And then verse 7, 1 Corinthians 6, 7, now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. I'm not trying to put Todd out of business or anything of that nature because he doesn't do this, this kind of stuff. But, uh, and, and we're not going to talk about the, you know, the nuances of meaning here. But notice the last part of that verse. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheap? You've got to be kidding you got to be kidding. I'm supposed to let somebody cheat me and not go after them? Well, the point here, again, without getting into the nuances of meaning, the point here is that there are times that we must give up our rights and our privileges and suffer wrong for the name of Jesus in our relationships with other Christians. God wants us to make every effort of personal peace, to get along with each other, as long as we don't have to compromise his truth. It's not all about our feelings and it's not all about our comfort. I know I say that all the time too. 
By the way, most interpersonal conflicts are about insignificant things. They get, grow into big things, but they usually start out little things. Last Sunday, I said, uh, make a big deal out of God every day this week. And what we make a big deal out of isn't a big deal. Did you make a big deal out of something that wasn't a big deal this week, this past week? I did once or twice. <laughs> you know, I did once or twice, made a big deal out of something. Not a big deal. It was just over with, right, right, right away. You know what I did yesterday? I was working out there. Eddie came by. And I, I was doing a little electrical work outside, and I'm not an electrician, and I shouldn't have been doing it, but I had a whole bottle of, uh, uh, of uh, conduit sealer. And I forgot to screw the top down on that before I pulled away, and it poured all over the back end of my truck and down the paint on the bumper out of the back of it. I wish I hadn't made a big deal out of that. But it's not a big deal. I didn't get it all off yet, but it's not, it's not really a big deal, you know. But we'll make a big deal out of that, but not make a big deal out of God. What I'm saying is that, is that you know, sometimes people, they get divorced and destroy their families over some little thing they made a big deal out of. And it wasn't a big deal at all, but they, they made such a big deal out of it that they just killed people because of it. You don't love me. You don't respect me. You did this. You did that. You did something else. Back in the early 70s, there was a, about a second generation Christian psychologist that came through the Miami area, and I went to listen to him speak, and I just remember one of the illustrations that he gave. Uh, he said that his wife never closed the cabinet doors in the kitchen, and it just irritated the stew out of this guy that his wife would not close the cabinet doors in the kitchen. So he said he would go in there and find three or four of them open. He would slam them as hard as he could, one by one, just to let her know back in the back of the house that she had not closed the cabinet doors. And I don't have time to tell the whole story, but he got to the point where he realized, he said, you know, that just wasn't in her field of vision. That just didn't mean anything. Uh, to her. Tolerating other people's faults may sound like a radical idea. I'm going to force you to be like me. Tolerating other people's faults may sound like a radical idea, but it's, it's God's way, and it works. Colossians 3.12 says this, therefore, as the elect of God, hey, who, who am I? I am someone who is chosen by God, holy God has set me apart. I'm a holy person. You are too. I'm a saint. You're a saint. Set apart. And beloved, God loves us. God puts a, a, a priority on us. So thinking about what God has done for our lives, put on. Here's what you're supposed to put on. Tender mercies toward people. Humility. Kindness. Humility. Meekness. Long-suffering. Verse 13. Bearing with one another. Uh, going the long distance with people, not giving up and throwing people away and making a big deal out of nothing, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, for even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. God called us to live in peace together. Now, I could have just kept on, I could have just spent the whole morning this morning just going from one verse to another verse uh, about getting along, because that's a big topic uh, in the New Testament. But God has called us to live together in peace. 
in order to experience God's peace in our lives, we must be willing uh, to be an agent of peace for others by acting in a kind, meek, humble, forgiving, peaceful way to others. In the last days, God says we will experience world peace, peace on earth in the last days. Nations will live together in harmony. For a thousand years, nations won't even have to uh, plan for war because Jesus is making sure there is no possible trouble with that. But in the meantime, God is filling the world with peace one heart at a time. It could be your heart and my heart. So God gives us three steps to peace. They are this. Number one, learn to walk in his light, right? We talked about that. Number two, become lifelong students of his ways. Not just his words, but of his ways. And number three, let go of conflict and seek peace with others. To do those things, we must first know God. We're going to talk about knowing God later in the month, but we must first know God, the God of peace. And so I leave you with this last verse, Romans 5.1. Therefore, the apostle writes, having been justified by faith. The word justified means declared not guilty of my sins. I, I, I realize that I'm a sinner and I realize that I have done things and I've always done things that are wrong. I, I realize that I've always done things that disappoint God. My attitude's wrong a lot of times. My action's wrong. Sometimes I do things that I know they're wrong and I just don't care at the time I do it. I know that I am a sinner, but I also know that I've trusted Jesus Christ as my personal savior and that he's declared me not guilty because of my faith in him. Therefore, being, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I say to you, if you want peace, and if you want to be an agent for peace in your family, on your job, in your community, in your nation, and around the world, the first thing you have to do is know the God of peace. The first thing you have to do is to go to God acknowledging the fact that that there is nothing good about you. Now, you may think you're a pretty good person, but there's really nothing good about, about you. Uh, Jesus one time made the statement, there's, nobody's good, there's only one good one, that's the Father in heaven, and, and that's not you, and that's not me. So we're not good, and we need to go to God and say, Father, I know that I am a sinner in your presence. I turn my back, I turn away from my sins, I lay them all before you, and I ask you to cleanse me from that. Take those sins away from my life. Make me a part of your family. He will accept you into his family forever and ever. You will be a, a child of his and you will be guaranteed peace in your heart and peace throughout all eternity. Let's pray together. Father, I know you're here today and I thank you for that. I know that we want peace, but we're not always willing to do what it would take to have peace in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our church, or anywhere else. And I ask you to give us that grace, because we can only do it by your grace. We can't do it on our own. Grant us your grace. Grant us your faith. Grant us your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.